0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today at Newlands Hawes, passing place between two of Lakeland's most fabulous valleys, between Newlands and Buttermere, and I'm in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for the day's walk, Mark Richards. Hello Mark! <laughs>
1: Hello David, it's wonderful to be back outdoors. Yep. And, of course, you can tell we're at Newlands Halls because of the vehicles going by.
0: Well, that and the waterfall in the background, that's Moss Force. Moss Force, yes, coming Moss. off Buttermere Moss, the back of High Snogrig. Comes down in kind of three cascades, Yeah, it? so it's
1: quite an eye-catching thing. And visitors who come to the Lake District and maybe never climb a fell
0: drive up here and are all struck by this great cascade. It's a great spot, isn't it? We're here today at this fabulous valley and we're going to do a little climb up that tempting ridge to our right that's uh, what's to the, the north yes. yes not rig which goes on to ard crags we aren't going to climb ard crags today but ard crags mark is in my top 10 Wainwright fell list can't be
1: bad it's a definite mm. little razor sharp ridge covered in heather
0: yes yep yeah, i have very happy memories of climbing on a a lovely sunny summer's evening uh, with a, a small bottle of something bubbly, I think I remember. But anyway, that was a long time ago and not pertinent to today's conversation where we're delving into something very important to the landscapes that we love in Cumbria. We're talking about the commons.
1: Yes, indeed. The farming life and the, the structure of it and the issues that face us with the changes that are pending in the near, very near future mm. and so we have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Julia Aglinby mm. who's chairman of the Foundation for Common Land which covers the whole of England and there's commons all over England many that we aren't fully aware of and hopefully we'll discover a good deal more about it today
0: Yeah, so there's kind of two intersecting circles here there's upland farming and the commons and of course a lot of upland hill farmers farm on the commons and there is this perfect storm really which we have touched on in previous country strides but we've got new payments for public goods coming in off the back of brexit we've got climate change and we've got a decline in biodiversity and all of these things will have to be tackled to some extent over the the next 10, 20, 50 years. But certainly in the next decade, there's going to be huge changes and we have a chance to either get things right or for things to go very wrong. And we're at the sharp face here in Cumbria, aren't we?
1: We are indeed. These are tough times ahead and Julia's work and the people she speaks with are at the sharp end of it all. Mm. She speaks with policy formers, politicians, but she also works and communicates at farming level as well so she's got the full repertoire of knowledge and is very passionate about it and understandably it's the sort of thing you could pull your hair out and say oh gosh what's happening but she's determined to pull people together
0: well look let's go and meet julia now and let's take our first strides up onto not Rig.
1: Well the breeze is quite something here on Newlands Halls and I'm admiring the great sweep of fells around but most of them are capped in cloud which is not unusual in these quarters but at least it's not raining and the breeze is quite a warm balmy breeze. I'm with Julia Aglumby, and it's a glorious moment for me because I've always wanted to have a, a good chat with you Julia.
2: Well thank you very much for inviting me I feel very honoured to be here.
1: You're involved with farming in many senses in North Cumbria.
2: Yes, very much so. So I've been living in North Cumbria since 1989, but my family have been here since 11.30. So the first document the Aglumby signed about land was in 11.30 relating to um, the management of fish on the River Eden at Wetherill and we've still got that document. We're kind of what you might call rooted in the land and the management of contested resources. And I've had the huge privilege and pleasure to be involved in land management and professionally working here long term since 1997 when I started working at the auction mart at Carlisle as a land agent. And we've also farmed uh, since that time as well in a small way. Um, we farm in the Eden Valley and uh, have a care farm. It's an organic pasture-fed Livestock Association certified farm. We have longhorns and, and sheep. And our aim is to transform people's lives through purposeful activity on farming. That's the sort of the job I do between 10 o'clock at night and 1 o'clock in the morning. And then um, my professional life is really focused on the management of the uplands across England that sense
1: of deep-rootedness, I think, is amazing. It comes out in your love of the Eden itself, doesn't it? You love swimming in it. Oh, yeah.
2: My main hobby is um, while swimming, and um, I go in the river several times a week. Lockdown's been great for giving me more time, because instead of going to London three times a month, I've got the time to do more while swimming, and it's just fantastic. Shooting the rapids on the River Eden is a great way to de-stress after some difficult conversations around policy. It um, gets me away from Zoom, And it's been lovely having my kids at home in order to drag me out.
1: Absolutely. Many people who are focused on political or particular environmental issues don't engage themselves actually with the landscape, whereas you actually do. Now, your particular roles are?
2: Well, yes, I'm one of these people who sort of um, probably has jack of all trades and master of none. So um, I have a number of roles, and the, the idea is to be that bridge between different aspects of the management of our countryside so i have um and i think particular reason you've asked me here today is i'm executive director of the foundation for common land we're a small charity covering great britain and we are here to enhance and protect common land Mm -hmm. and the system of pastoral commoning so that's What I hope we're going to be able to talk about today and how that really embodies the challenges that are around the whole of our countryside, how we can have multiple outcomes from the same piece of land. And commoning really personifies those issues and gets to the heart of them.
1: You're also involved with the Uplands Alliance. What's that function?
2: Well, the Uplands Alliance is a network of organisations passionate about the uplands. And again, it's about bringing people together, having a really broad tent. We know that lots of people care about the uplands. So within the Uplands Alliance Steering Group, we have the Tenant Farmers Association, we have the National Farmers Union, we have the Country Landowners Association. We also have Rewilding Britain and the Wildlife Trusts and the RSPB. And it's to be a, a space in which we can discuss these difficult issues. And we have Five sort of calls to action, and at the heart of that is that thriving businesses must be at the heart of managing our uplands effectively. Mm -hmm. Land in England is privately owned Mm -hmm. to a very large degree, and that means we need to nurture and encourage and empower businesses within the uplands, whether those are farming, whether they're forestry, whether they're sporting, whether they're tourism, whether they're conservation. They must all be encouraged to deliver better for society. Water is defined by the uplands. As far as the Uplands Alliance is concerned, we define the Uplands as the severely disadvantaged area and the moorland area. So there are maps of England and they map land according to the conditions. and that's both a mixture of weather, soils, um, steepness. So we use the classification of severely disadvantaged and moorland areas. It's about 12% of England. It's land that's certainly unploughable. No, you can, can plow. Be. If you think about down in the valley here in Newlands, you know, in the Second World War, you would have had many of these farms here would have plowed their fields. They would have had oats growing on them. They would have produced feed for their horses when horses were, you know, the alternative to tractors. So they would have had crops and potatoes. So the valley bottom, some of that is ploughable land, but it's got a very short growing season. Quite. Yes. Yeah, I've, seen, I've been on
1: Sale Fell, which is uh, Bassenthwaite, yeah.
2: and this. Rig and Furrow on the very summit,
1: which seems quite uh, incongruous, but certainly you see it occasionally. If you go to Castle Rig Stone Circle, is Rig and Furrow amongst that? Yeah. Yeah. So this particular geographical spot, Newlands Hall's with the surrounding fells, what's special in this context?
2: Well, I've spent many evenings driving over this horse to get to meetings on both sides, whether we're talking about the Newlands Valley to the north or Buttermere to the south. I've been involved with this particular landscape for over 15 years. We're standing really at the centre of CL11, and that means Common Land Unit Number 11 in the county of Cumberland. It's an area of about 5,000 hectares. It's a big, big area. So that's 12,500 acres, and it sits at the centre of, of the Lake District. It's all site of special scientific interest. It's all designated under European legislation as a special area of conservation. Um, aside from a small amount, Cat Bell's actually isn't designated, but it's a phenomenal area at the heart of the most visited piece of countryside in the country. And so, for me, how we manage this landscape is at the heart of what is England. And that's tied up very much with our psyche um, about how do they feel being English. Mm. And for me, this land, too often we don't realise how it is managed and the people who are managing it. I always liken it to Lego. And if you think about Lego, each normal brick has eight studs on it. the reason the Danes put eight studs on is that that makes a stable building block. If you were only to have three studs, it wouldn't be so stable. But as we build a Lego model, you can't see all the studs. And it's a bit like that with the countryside. When I'm here, I can't see any of the commoners. I can't see their farmhouses. I can't see their dogs. I can see very few. I can see some of the sheep. But really... The people who look after this landscape are invisible, a bit like the studs on a Lego block. But what we know is that if we lose those people from the landscape, it will be a very, very different form of landscape. We've got such huge issues facing land management at the moment that it's a good location to consider how we ensure that we can build a nature-rich, a culture-rich lake district. As we enter the most challenging time during the last 70 years, this is the most challenging time from the 1st of January onwards. Our countryside is facing threats that it hasn't had to deal with since the end of the Second World War.
1: The breeze is
2: getting up a bit, but nonetheless,
1: I think we ought to get up a bit as well, because Rig is a great summit, uh, and uh, we'll just give ourselves a little bit of... Uh, uh, Exercise, I think, now that
2: sounds excellent. I'm looking forward to it. It's nice to be away from Zoom for a while.
1: <laughs> well, well, Zoom up here, Julia. <laughs> I'm looking back now. I've got a moment to look back. Just see that towards St. James's Church at Buttermere and there's a string of cars coming up to Newlands Halls from Buttermere, and the sunlight is bursting in the valley. It's not on the tops, and, and the lovely oak woodland on that far side underneath Red Pike are very striking, and you just see the upper reaches of Cremac Water. So it's a moment to think about these uplands and these commons. Um, what are the origins of commons, Julia?
2: Well, land has been managed as common land from time immemorial and before time immemorial. There's evidence of communal management of commons from the southwest from over 4,000 years ago. Nowadays, common land is defined as land which is owned by one person over which other people have rights to harvest the resources from that. Um, And if we go back about 500 years, um, over 25% of of England would have been common land. If we go back 1,000 years, it would have been about half of England would have been land managed in common. Nowadays, only 3% of England is designated and registered as common land. So it's been a shrinking resource What's extraordinary about that is that common land is seven times more likely to be designated for nature. It is four times more likely to have a scheduled ancient monument on it. And in terms of open access, 40% of our open access land is common land. So it's an extraordinarily rich resource in terms of the public benefits it provides. But if we look back over time... What we had is a situation where the population of England was much, much smaller than it is now and resources were less contested. And we found that as private property ownership came in, we had um, the Anglo-Saxons and there was common land there and uh, land was managed by, again, a sort of pre-feudal system of earls and a very equivalent system as, as we all learnt about in school with the Normans. So I think every pupil of my age, I'm just 50, um, we all learnt about the Norman lords and we learnt um, about the Doomsday Book and we learnt about the serfs and villains and how they had their patch of land they could farm in common, they could turn their beast out onto it and they had a little bit of their own property. Um, And that's been at the heart of Commons is that it's allowed poor people access to resources that are privately owned. But the Statute of Merton in 1235 um, required lords of the manor to provide sufficient grazing um, and resources for commoners. And that's something that um, the Magna Carta was referred to as well. So it's been a very well legislated resource for over 800 years. And, And the most recent act about common land was in 2006. But unfortunately, from the 1500s onwards, there was this great desire to enclose common land, for people to manage it more intensively and to accrue the wealth to themselves. As the birth and increase in capitalism, people could see that they could manage land more efficiently, in their words, and efficiently means really keeping the profits to yourself. If you have to share profits of the land with other people, then inevitably you keep less for yourself. And that's why common land was enclosed. If we think of the poetry of John Clare, who bemoaned the enclosure of commons you know, around Northamptonshire, and that was you know, a great sadness that came out through his poetry, that loss to people. And we then had that exodus from the countryside at the same time as industrialisation took place. And it was a sort of pull and push, as we find today with refugees. There's both a pull of a better world, life and livelihood somewhere else but also a push as contested land property rights occur and so we have here in Buttermere one of the largest areas of common land, single common land units and this really encapsulates everything that sort of remains but has been lost to so many parts of England. Yes indeed, yeah.
1: even to, to this day some properties have rights for geese and cows and things like that. Lingering reminders of that age-old practice where people in a community had their rights on the common and then what was often described to as the waste, uh, but actually became too tempting for people who accrued cash and money and wealth and status. We think of the Lake District as being sort of a common land. Uh, It's a national park. But you'll find common land all
2: over the place. In the middle of London... Can you identify a few of these sort of locations? There's actually common land in every single county in England, it's extraordinary. Even in Rutland, with the smallest county, we have common land. And there are some extraordinary iconic places, um, both urban and rural, that people just don't think of as commons, but they highly value. Um, so whether you're in Newcastle and the town there, which has cattle grazing on it, that's common land. Whether you think of Hampstead Heath, Wimbledon Common, obviously the wumbles of wimbledon again showing my age um i won't <laughs> sing along to the theme tune um, <laughs> If we go to the New Forest, so the New Forest is a very special sort of, of common land. 67% of the New Forest National Park is common land. Uh, 37% of Dartmoor National Park is common land. If we think of all those tours, those very iconic rocks that stand across the Dartmoor landscape, all of those are on commons. Um, we go over to the Yorkshire Dales. Um, over 20% of England's common land is in the county of Yorkshire. And here in Cumbria, we have a third of the common land in England. That is partly a result of our landscape, as you, you Mark, refer to them as wastes. There's much less incentive to enclose land when it's hilly, when there's less value to be captured through its enclosure. A lot of the lower fells were enclosed. Um, So yes, it's it's across the whole county. A lot of the areas when we think about our culture and what we may consider as England, those are areas which are common. There are iconic spaces. If we think of the Cumbria, we think of Helvellyn, we think of Blencathra and we think of Scarfell. All those are commons. Mm. If you were to suddenly um, you know, get rid of those areas, we don't manage them properly over the next 50, 100 years we will be destroying some of our most valued and iconic landscapes and we have a little strap line in the foundation of common land is that we are here to support iconic people looking after iconic places what a lovely notion there are 3900 commoners who are active in england at the moment so it's still a tiny percentage it's less than 5% of farmers there are about 89000 farmers so we've got 5% of uh, farmers looking after 21% of our sites of special scientific interest. It's quite a
1: staggering thought that when, when you know how important the resource it all is and we are hanging in there on the coattails of a handful of dedicated people. Well, I'm looking back round the wreathing mists on Robinson and the great hanging coombe up there. And I'm sweeping round by Moss Force onto High Snockrick, which just means the proud headland. And the sunlight is coming down from Sour Milk Gill out of Blibri Tarn up at that hanging valley there. And the sunlight is bursting through the cloud over there. It's Fabulous. It's good to get to the top of that steep rise, Julia. You get a good view from here, though. I can see through the gap beyond Blencathra towards Eden, and the Pennines, which are similarly wrapped in this whiteness, (laughs) and uh, the sunlight's down on the doned water. You just see it through the gap, end of Rowling End. Now this is farming country, some of this is National
2: Trust. So what's the
1: distinct pattern of farming on the commons here?
2: Well, if we think about a farm in the Lake District, what we have is a very neat, and we can see it down here, the hedgerows, the stone walls of the small fields in the valley bottom. And then as we come up the side of the valley, we have the intakes. So those are the slightly greener bits of land. They've still got rushes in them. They may have some cattle and some sheep in them. Those are the intakes and the allotments of the farms. So those are managed by each farmer individually. And then we reach the fell wall. And from the fell wall upwards, we are generally really on common land, so pretty much everything of uplands we look at here is commons, whether it's Skiddaw, Blencathra, and here and the Derwent Fells. For those who've read *A Shepherd's Life* by James Rebanks, they'll perhaps be able to imagine that annual pattern. I consider the the year starting perhaps in the autumn when the farm puts puts its cows to the top, and that's the sort of beginning of the cycle so the farmer chooses which year he'd like to lamb next year so the sheep will be brought back off the common in the first week of November put to the top and kept in for three or four weeks on the inside land on their fields and then quite a few of them might be turned back December time, depending on the weather, depending on the stewardship scheme they're in. And then come February, they'll be brought back for scanning to see which uh, have twins and which have singles. Will be fed accordingly. Those with singles might be turned out again. They're lambed in April, and then come May time. The ewes are turned back to the fell, and this is where the most important part of commons management comes into play, where the ewes heft their lambs. Many people might have heard of this term hefting, and sheep are hefted to a particular area of land, and then the heft is a noun for the area of land on which each commoner's sheep. And what's quite interesting, if you go walking in the Lake District, you'll often see three sheep going around together, three generations. So you'll see the grey hertowikia. You'll then see um, a sort of darker grey, brown, usually brown, hog. And then you'll see a black lamb. And they're very much keeping these these family groups. During that time, the mother will be introducing her lamb to the hef. And that makes it much easier for the farmer to then go and find his sheep. In addition, you'll often see colours on the sheep's fleece. And each farmer will have what's called a smit mark. So they'll have a pattern of paint which is daubed on the side of the sheep it might be a dot on their left shoulder it might be a streak down their right side and there are these books called a shepherd's guide which tell you what the markings are for, for each farm in addition they have lug marks so that, that the lug is the ear when the lamb's are little they'll have a clip taken out of their ear in a particular pattern and even just this morning, I had a, an email from um, a farmer who had had some of his sheep stolen. So he found a ewe which had his lug mark in it, but someone else's smit mark on it. So sheep rustling, even within a community, continues and can be a challenge and a source of major disputes between people.
1: I've seen sheep rinsed in orange to prevent that kind of thing happening. I think the word lug, which we associate with ear, actually is a Viking word for law.
2: Is that right? Yes. Oh, that's that's great. Something
1: I can contribute yes. to this. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you you yeah. can go check that one yeah. out. But uh, uh, I've given it in your legole anyway. Yes. Um, but the, we we got a, a yaw and a lamb next to us, and they're not. Traditional, but below us we've got some uh, Herdwick with a black lamb. When you ask people what sheep do you see in the Lake District, they all say Herdwick. But actually, when you get to somewhere like this, you can see we're quite a bodily cruise sometimes.
2: <laughs> well, there is, and there's an, an interesting pressure. And when we think of the Herdwick, it's really just a herd of sheep. The name Herdwick, and it's become a breed over the last sort of 150 years. But really, it, the, the sheep breeds have changed over time. And what's the great thing about the Herdwick sheep as we know today is that it's been Bread in order to withstand the particular environment here, and in particular to be able to winter out. Um, and what we found now over the last 20 years is that there's been a pattern of off-wintering encouraged by English Nature and now Natural England in order to relieve the pressure on the natural vegetation. But if you don't need sheep to be acclimatised to being on the fell in the winters why, farmers are saying, why don't we have a more productive breed of sheep in order to produce more live weight gain during the summer months in order to sell their sheep for a higher amount. It's that balancing between the cultural heritage, the natural heritage, and also the business and the production of food. It's interesting because
1: Angus Winchester, over the ridge from here at Gatesgarth, referred to that as a vacary in the 13th century, a great cattle ranch, and that became quite a centre for the establishment of the standards for the Herdwick breed. People tend to think of the Herdwick as being deeply rooted in the landscape, but of course it's, it's a part of an endless evolution that we're witnessing to this day. Looking down here, I'm looking down onto Keskadale with its intensely wound beck, and there's an area over there where there's bracken, that I believe, gets harvested every now and then as well. This is a distinct herbage on this landscape, and that is part of the practice of the farming life here over generations.
2: We have a landscape here, as you said, that has been shaped over really 4,000 years, so... There weren't sheep here 4,000 years ago, but what we had was there would have been trees much higher up. The Valley of Clilogy, there would have been a tree line, and it depends on the climate, etc. But what we found is that a lot of those trees were cut down for other reasons, not because of sheep. A lot of it linked to mining, the need for, for wood at that stage in time, smelting. The landscape is a result of a series of stages, and we have this sort of what's known often as the shifting baseline. So we would have moved from a situation where it would have been a predominantly tree landscape to um, an area which was free of trees. And then domesticated la- livestock came in first, often the cattle, as you said, a l- quite some significant areas of the late district were owned by monasteries and those the vaccaries and they'd have been let out to be part of the wealth of monasteries so cattle would have been here we'd have then sheep would have come in and be, been introduced when wool became a very valuable commodity. Now we're in the dreadful situation where most of the wool in Cumbria has been burnt this year. That is the most horrendous thing. Well, farmers used to be able to pay their rent from their wool check. I can think of a tenanted farm. I can see from here whether, you know, say the rent would be about £6,000 a year. Now he'll perhaps get £40 for his wool. So, you know, we're in a situation where we have a natural fibre which isn't being utilised. We have these huge challenges of the climate emergency and the biodiversity crisis, and we're, yet we're not using those natural resources.
1: Well, obviously, there are quite a few challenges ahead, and uh, particularly the breeze is coming over my shoulders. so I think we'll march a little bit further and see if we can beat this swirling cloud. Taking a moment uh, after the rigours of the ascent and the breeze coming over our left shoulder to hunker into the borough of the east slope of Not Riggs Ridge. We're sitting down to just to ponder a few of the critical issues of the time of climate change, uh, changes that are going on, including Brexit, rewilding as well
2: fascinating sort of wicked problem as as it's called these days we already discussed commons are only three percent of england and if we think about the lake district it's the most visited place in england outside london over 20 million people come here a year so we know it's highly valued as a cultural landscape so the question is is how do we make it both nature rich and culture rich so we make it resilient in the face of the climate emergency that we face how do we make sure it can contribute to addressing the biodiversity crisis and how do we ensure that the cultural heritage is nurtured so that the businesses here the thousand farming businesses here are thriving rather than feeling under pressure we expect over half the business farming businesses in the Lake District to be unprofitable in the next seven to eight years. That's going to be a huge challenge and there are m- massive risks if we don't invest properly in our future here, in the future for all of us, then we will end up in fact with more environmental degradation rather than less. Now turning to rewilding, it often needs to be done at scale and people um, and we've seen over recent years and increasingly over recent months and even this week in the press that the very wealthy are able to engage and adopt rewilding because they can afford to take the risks with, with land management and they're preparing themselves for this change and instead of having direct payments they know those are going out and now we're moving to public payments for public benefits. So it's very convenient with the assets you own, you can then see an alternative way of managing that will also enable you to um, extract effectively a rent from the government from looking after them in a particular way. What I'd very much like to see is all land being managed with greater concern for nature and greater concern for high quality local food production so that we integrate production and this idea of sort of mini areas of of wilded areas so on our farm at home you know we fenced off a, a hectare here and a hectare there and then we can see nature burgeoning in those in those areas creating corridors within a farmed landscape rather than having an either or that doesn't mean we can't have rewilding but it's certainly not the answer when we want to have more resilient food systems it's not the only answer. I do worry that, in a sense, it becomes the new fad, and I'm always concerned about pendulum swings. Suddenly, we think that rewilding is the answer. Um, for me, there's a lot of middle ground, and actually, we can have our cake and eat it. There's some very good work done by someone I worked with in Indonesia years ago called Paul Jepsen, and you look at a sort of continuum from sort of 1 to 10... And you say, well, there are some areas it will become wilder, but you really ever want them to get them to two or three. And then there are other areas of, of Britain which we may want to be fully rewilded. Rewilding Britain is looking to rewild 4% of Britain. You know, we're looking to look after common land and nurture common land for its cultural heritage and its natural heritage, and that's 3%. So the total of that is only 7% of England. There should be plenty of space taking a place-based approach to have rewilding in some areas and commoning that also looks after nature. Let's turn to looking down the valley here and we can see some hay meadows down here. You can see they've been mown already. You can see the lighter colour where um, Tom, tenant down there, will have mown his meadows. They're meadows of enormous diversity. And if we were to rewild this whole valley, we would lose that specific biodiversity of those meadows. So it's not a game where you just win by rewilding. We also have just around the corner here, and we can't quite see it. Maybe if we crane our necks a little bit, we can see the Keskadale oak woodlands. There are a few ancient upland oak woodlands left in the Lake District. On Commons, I help manage. There's Keskadale oaks here, and then we have young wood over on Munkrysdale on the backside of Blencathra. These are almost bonsai oak trees and immensely precious in terms of their biodiversity. And there are opportunities for increasing woodland and scrub across commons. Um, If I was to sort of fast forward and to say well what happens if we had 10% of the Lake District commons we allow to turn over to a more wooded vegetation that would be an extra 6,200 hectares of woodland in the Lake District which would be phenomenal in terms of its biodiversity. That would leave 90% of commons for grazing. Not far from here, I'm in negotiation with some uh, on a scheme where the commoners have offered to give over about 20% of their common for a wood pasture. So, about 300 hectares of the common will be wood pasture. And so, commoners are very much addressing these issues and. In some places, that will mean having some fences on this open landscape. And this is an area we also need to address sensitively because, as we've already discussed, this open landscape is stunning. But we're talking about fences maybe for 25 years, for 30 years, while those trees establish. Maybe then we can have wood pastures, and you will know, Mark, the lovely wood pastures at Geltsdale Fabulous. Knockwood, binny banks. Exactly. And if we could think about having more areas like that in the Lake District, wouldn't that be a boon?
1: There is this emotional side to this whole thing. There are some farmers, and you can understand they come from deeply rooted feelings, that there's only one way of doing things. And the, the notion of changing things is just, just is an anathema to them.
2: Well, as we've discussed, there are only 3,900 commoners in England, 500 in, in the Lake District, 500 active commoners, and there are 20 million visitors each year. So you would feel slightly beleaguered, wouldn't you, if you're, you know, you're in such a minority and you feel it is incumbent on you to protect and steward this environment for the future, for future generations. And so having these conversations, allowing enough time for these conversations is what's really important um, so that people don't feel that they're being got at, that they're being criticised or bullied. bullied. And the power, one of the the huge challenges is, and I'm particularly interested in, is the balance of power between, say, natural England um, and when these areas are sites of special scientific interest, there's a very strong legal right you know, in terms of natural, we have strong legal powers. We have the owners of common land who may have very distinct ambitions for that land, whether it's a water company, whether it's the Ministry of Defence, whether it's a private landlord, and they may well have very distinct ambitions. And then we have, may have individual commoners who also have this. And at the moment, those conversations are highly charged because in terms of the economics of individual farm businesses, they're facing the biggest change for, for 70 years since the end of the Second World War. From 2021, the payments to all farmers across England will change dramatically as we see the phasing out of direct payments, which effectively have subsidised food. So they have paid farmers to be viable to provide cheap food to the more than 60 million people who live in this country.
1: They're paying farmers to produce food just for the sake of producing food without looking at it in the context of what the impact on the
2: land was. Yes, and it's, it's interesting that £3 billion that's paid to farming is 0.4% of our government expenditure now what's our most important thing as a human being? Eat. It's to eat. It's you know we need to eat, we need water, we need to eat and we need shelter. You know, it is a very small amount of money spent. Unfortunately, there have been many perverse incentives from the way the money has been given, and particularly payments from the 1976 onwards through to 2004, when they were effectively paid per head of sheep or cattle that they had. And that led to increases, significant increases in grazing levels, because that was farmers very uh, rationally responding to the signals they were provided by government. We're now in a position where sheep numbers have reduced significantly on the commons and it's a question of how we find that new balance. So I'm completely in favour of the direction of travel that we are going to move towards public money for public benefits. Absolutely committed. The trouble is, is that we've got to navigate down this very challenging canyon with a series of rapids in it. And you can get through rapids if you have someone to guide you. Now I just fear we're effectively letting farmers loose at the top of a canyon with no paddle and no guide. Just this morning I was reading through the latest government advice and it is wholly inadequate in terms of providing that guide. If you are running a farm here with 200 acres of of land inside land and rights for 500 sheep on the fell you would have absolutely no idea what to do next.
1: Well, we've been over the summit and somebody's built a cairn of minor consequence, I would describe it, constructed with stones that they just happened to have brought in their pocket. (laughs) <laughs> and we've got a great view, of course. Uh, well to my east, you can see the Helvellian Range. The cloud has lifted sufficiently, and you can see High Spy uh, across Newlands Valley. Uh, you can't just see Robinson's top, but you can see a great bulk of it. Uh, over to my left, behind us, uh, Wandup and that great hanging valley underneath it with uh, Crag Hill itself in cloud as well. And you can see straightly ahead, Ard crags just over top by Causey Pike and down below us you can see that blanket of oakwood that you mentioned. It's a definite pocket and there's a similar one isn't there in the Rigbeck Valley over the other side of the ridge but there must have been a reason why that became economically viable to keep it. Everything had an economic purpose in farming terms which brings me back to this whole notion of What happens if farmers, in effect, just can't afford to keep running these common lands because the money isn't there, if this this payment system just fails on them?
2: Well, that's a real worry and it's a real concern in terms of the the cultural heritage as we fast forward over, over the next 10 years and the changes that we're going to see. Is this transition period long enough to allow farmers to adapt? If you think about these Herdwick sheep here, a lamb is born this year, it's a hog next year. Um, it's then a two-share, and then it doesn't lamb till a year after that. So it's three years after it's born before it lambs. So we have a long lag in terms of changes in management as, as we move forward. So farmers really need to know now what they should be lambing, putting you know, to the top in three years' time. So we do need to plan forward. In terms of that cultural heritage, you know, there, there are people who might say, so what? You know and that is a a question you could say so what to Buckingham Palace, you could say so what to much of our cultural heritage. What is it that embeds us and Enables us to think this is our history that keeps us rooted to the land that draws people to come back here. Interestingly, we have 20 million people coming here, but the number of people who go to wilder places in Scotland is an awful lot less. People come to see this managed pastoral landscape. It's rather like the last night of the
1: proms, that emotional sense exactly. of it being special. Why is it special?
2: We can't really put our finger on it, but we know it is. We feel very, very connected to it. And we feel a sense of mental and spiritual both refreshment and uplifting from, you know, whether it's from the Psalms, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills. That's the motto of Keswick School, which we can see from here. These are very deep um, emotional bonds here. And when we think about the farms, we have to remember the farms here, you can't farm a valley farm in isolation As far as the farmer is concerned, their farm includes the common. So there isn't enough land there to run a viable farm. They can't just abandon the commons. If they abandon the commons, they abandon the valley. And then we change the landscape in the valley as well. So it is an interconnected whole here, and that's what's, what's so important. Sometimes I feel that farmers really have been getting the sort of rough deal in terms of the conversation around climate change. For instance, it's politically acceptable to tell farmers to stop farming, to stop eating meat. But if you think about it, I enjoy roast lamb, and I enjoy eating our beef at home. We sell everything direct to customer. And I think, well, actually, I could eat meat for two years compared to the carbon cost of one flight to New York, It's politically acceptable to say people should cut back on their meat intake, but it's not politically acceptable to say, you know, you shouldn't go to Barcelona for a hen party. You know, there are lots of things where we are contradictory in the advice that we give to society, and yet we pick on certain elements of society to criticise them.
1: Big decisions are
2: really in front of
1: us in the next two or three years. So, having digested that, Julia, I suppose I would like to have your feeling of confidence that it's actually going to come to something positive.
2: Today we walked side by side up here and and that for me it's about walking side by side with commoners over you know the next 8 to 10 years and um, and supporting them through that for landscapes as precious as these we need to support those who look after that, who are the bricks that hold these and the studs that hold these landscapes together. It is incumbent on those of us who have the opportunities to access and and, um, those who are influencing and making decisions, that we need to be there supporting people as they move through to this next stage.
1: Right, we've come to that critical moment. Uh, Quick-fire questions. Now you have no warning for any of these questions, so uh, be on your metal. <laughs>
2: buzzer, buzzer, finger on the
1: buzzer. If
2: you had the perfect Lakeland day, what would that be? It would be walking on the high fells. Um, I undertake an activity called the Hunt, which is called the Trevelyan Hunt, and oh, yes. it it takes place, um, we've based at Seatoller, and for me, a perfect day is... You know, going back probably 25 years when I was very fit and I'd be running around on the hunt and it's a an activity where four people go out with red sashes at 8.15 and at 8.45, 20 people go off and chase them. And you know, It's a game of tag and it was set up by people who were against um, the Trevelyan family, who were against... Um, you know, foxhounds, and so it's um, it's a fantastic experience. And you can be standing on Great Gable, and you suddenly are overcome with this sort of enthusiasm, and adrenaline. You might run down to Wasdale to see if there's anyone there, come back up, go on to Kirkville, down into Ennerdale, up onto Haystacks, and it really um, gives one a, a sense of being alive.
1: Fabulous. If you were cast away on a desert
2: island, Julia. Uh, which book by a Cumbrian author would you dearly wish to have with you? It's Winter Holiday by Arthur Ransom. And I love the Swallows and Amazons series. And often if I can't sleep in the middle of the night, I'll pull out uh, Winter Holiday. And it just combines that, um, that adventure, that spirit of adventure, the going into the unknown, the imagination and letting children live. And my maxim for parenting is really the maxim that um, Swallows in Amazon starts with, if not duffers will not drown, better drown than duffers. What was your first Lakeland memory? I never came to the Lake District as a child because we always went to other places because we knew we were going to move to Cumbria. Um, And so I didn't really come to the Lake District I remember when I was my first year at university and I brought a few friends up and going up Red Pike, which oh, we can just see, there. and I remember going here. up Red Pike, and I'd spent a lot of my teenage years in Scotland, and I just remember thinking how small the Lake District was. Five. <laughs> but how steep at the same time. Well, a, a gem uh, is usually small. <laughs> um, have you got a favourite fell? Yes, Carrock fell. Fell when I settled in Cumbria and I used to about two or three times a week used to go up Carrick Fell as training for the Trevelyan Hunt and um, so I just absolutely love Carrick Fell because it's um, it has fantastic views from it you can get up there really quickly you can get up and back in you know less than an hour mm-hmm. um it's got extraordinary archaeology you know, it's a common you've got the lake district system and then you've got wonderful um heather and biodiversity on the southern slopes mm-hmm. so carrick fells my very special yeah and it's
1: gabbro the same rock as in the coolin is that right very unusual it's anti-magnetic so you can't use a compass on carrick fell
2: uh, have you a favorite Cumbrian hero or heroine? I think in terms of people I admire and what they've contributed, they're both alive um, and what they've contributed over the last 20 or 30 years to shaping Cumbria. The two would be um, John Spedding and John Dunning. So John Spedding you know, is really within the charitable sector. he set up the Calvert Trust and gave land for the Calvert Trust and set up a Cumbria Community Foundation. and then John Dunning has been diversified you know from a farming from you know brought up on a Lake District hill farm and has then you know, set up T Bay services um, and set up Regged and I think he's that sort of compassionate, caring business. Um, shows that business can be responsible. Indeed
1: um, uh, John and Barbara I know go to the cafe every morning well they did before mm. Covid at in, in T-Bay North so they were v- always involved with it and mm. it mattered to them so this is a very torrid time for them. Have you a, a favourite Cumbrian food?
2: Probably Solway shrimps That's the first, we haven't had that one which I make myself, I pot them myself. So, with a nice butter, you know, local butter, Cumbrian butter, you know, a lot of nutmeg, paprika, and then, yeah, make them myself. And you can eat a lot.
1: Red squirrel or herdwick sheep? Both. Fine. Wainwright or Wordsworth? Wordsworth. Hotel or tent?
2: Tent. Have you a favourite Lakeland view? I think if you, someone like Hallen Fell, that's a pretty spectacular view. And you can look across also to the Pennines from there. So um, I think, uh, yeah, Hallen Fell is the place I always take visitors who think they like hill walking but don't.
1: <laughs> Ticks all the boxes. When the time comes and uh, a few friends gather to r- sprinkle your ashes, let's say it's somewhere that's special to you where might that be
2: they'd be in our woods in along the banks through the the river eden so they're hazel coppice with oak standards that's a, I think a good place to rest
1: there you are you've covered it all there julia well it's been an exquisite pleasure to be with you thank you so much for giving your time
2: the privilege is all mine mark
0: Journey's end back at Newlands Hawes, and there's still plenty of people coming off the fells, packing up their cars after a good day out. And a a good day out for us, Mark. As always, I've learnt a lot, but these are vitally important issues that Julia is talking about and fascinating breadth of knowledge that she imparted.
1: Yeah, I knew I'd learned something today, and it's one of those podcasts I will keep going back to to refresh my memory and to observe things... Cause we're witnessing a great period of change and uh, Julia actually is really involved in it.
0: And uh, She's in the thick of it, isn't she? I'm right in the thick of it. It's, if there's a, one thing that you've taken away from today, Mark, what, what would it be?
1: Uh, that a, a ewe will bring its hog and its current lamb yes. around to train them in hefting. Uh, she pointed out a threesome on the top of, not rig which I went and took a photograph of. And I've seen them before but didn't realise their relationship. So that was useful.
0: Yes, and she cleared up. I had a question. I thought it was three generations, which it is kind of in a way, but they have a common mum. So it's one mum and two kids of two different year groups. That's right, The hog and the lamb. Right, that's the terminology which was evading me. Now, some housekeeping, our usual housekeeping. If you've enjoyed this episode, there are now... 33 other episodes online Indeed, we're 34 Guys, we're growing up, aren't we? We are, we're getting getting middle-aged 34 more at www.countrystride.co.uk Recent highlights I would recommend uh, Sue Allen with her folk music of Cumbria I thoroughly enjoyed that and if you love this neck of the woods as well Dr. Angus Winchester and his virtual walk with us up Lawton Vale was was fabulous. And in fact, we we ended that just over the (laughs) horse. Over the
1: horse at Gatesgarth. Absolutely fabulous.
0: Um, Please do follow us on social media. We're on both Facebook and Twitter at Country Stride1. Country Stride1. We always post up a few little photos and, and occasional little glimpses as well from what we get up to between recordings. Next recording we are heading south Coniston waymark oh
1: yes we 've got uh, Dr. Penny Bradshaw talking about how the Lakeland landscape has inspired writers in children 's literature
0: mm. and
1: who hasn't been touched by it
0: yes, and not just cute rabbits
1: as Julia mentioned with Arthur ransom
0: yeah so we've got that to look forward to, and uh, many many more as we enter these summer months with the heavy cloud and uh, the occasional burst of sunlight but from us here today a wonderful newlands horse the clouds lifting and you can see skidder behind us and actually uh, just over Whiteless pike there grass just peeking out of the clouds isn't it but um anyway it's been a fab day uh, in the northwestern fells and we'll be back again now well, looking
1: forward to it and i hope you all enjoy it